Thanks, Marilyn, and thanks, Margaret, for reading Luke chapter 10 for us as we look at the parable of the Good Samaritan this morning. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. And just before I begin, uh, I just want to make you aware that Cora Vincent passed away this weekend. Uh, we don't have any details yet about her funeral, but uh, we'll let you know as soon as we, as we do. And uh, we certainly want to be in prayer for Cora's family at this time. So over 20 years ago, I threw a surprise party for my wife, Karen, to celebrate her 39 and holding birthday. Now, pulling this party off was quite a feat. It involved well-orchestrated teamwork and well-intentioned deception. And when Karen walked into our townhouse and was greeted by 40 people screaming, surprise, there was shock mixed with terror on her face. Karen had no idea what was coming. And you know, about a month ago, I pulled off another surprise. The Saturday before Mother's Day, I flew to Toronto, met up with my sisters, Kathy and Linda, and we drove to Mum's apartment in Kitchener. My sisters, who lived nearby, strolled through the door. Hi, Mom, we're just dropping food off for tomorrow. And then, after a pause, I came through the door and said, and they're dropping me off for Mother's Day, too. Mom had no idea this was coming, and it took a moment for all this to register in her mind. In her mind, I was still somewhere 900 miles to the east, not standing there in her apartment. Uh, but then she embraced the moment with a bit of shock, for sure. Oh my goodness, John. But with delight, too. So here's a, an awkward selfie just after I arrived. The parables of Jesus can be like the stories I just told. Surprise, you have no idea what's coming next. Jesus often used parables, stories, to draw people into life-changing conversations about who God is and how God wants us to live. And these stories, although they were built out of the ordinary stuff of life, were also full of surprises. Jesus often used surprise moments to push people to look at truth in a fresh way, to unsettle them, get them thinking about what life with God is really like. Which brings us to the parable of the Good Samaritan. So here's the setting. Jesus is traveling south from the Jewish territory of Galilee through Samaria, where the Samaritans live, towards Jerusalem in the, Jer in the Jewish territory of Judea. He isn't traveling alone. The 12 disciples are with him, a large crowd of other followers too, and as well an expert in the law. More on this expert in a moment. So the scripture passage Marilyn and Margaret read for us takes place while a large crowd of Jewish people is traveling among Samaritan people in the Palestine of Jesus' day. And they're not just passing through, they're spending time with Samaritans. Earlier in chapter 10, Jesus commissioned 72 people to go to towns and villages in Samaria and announce his coming. And when they report back, they are overjoyed. Chapter 10, verse 17. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. Now this expert in the law, he's observing all this and he is concerned. Why? because he's a trained professional with a job to do. Let's call him a Bible-believing lawyer. 
He knows his Bible from Genesis to Deuteronomy and the books of the prophets too. And he's educated in the traditions used to interpret the scriptures. And he has a working knowledge of the system of ceremonial purity, the holiness code, that drew on these interpretations to lay out hundreds of rules and regulations for Jewish people to follow if they wanted to stay holy, set apart from that big, bad, sinful world out there. And this Bible-believing lawyer sees what's going on here and he's concerned. Why again? Because Jesus and his followers are hanging out with Samaritans. And for a devout Jew like this lawyer, well, there was no such thing as a good Samaritan. They saw Samaritans as racially impure religious heretics who, who were from mixed Israelite-Assyrian marriages and who practiced a kind of distorted Judaism with a bit of Assyrian religion thrown in. So when it came to that holiness code, there was no place for a Samaritan in it. If, like Samaritans, you practiced a half-baked Judaism that seemed to almost mock the real thing, you weren't merely sinfully dirty. No, you had not one shred of holiness in you at all. Bottom line, devout Jews and devout Samaritans didn't get along. Jews traveling that dangerous road through Samaria to Jerusalem could get attacked, while Samaritans on a road alone among Jews could get beaten up, even killed. Keep that in mind. So this Bible-believing lawyer is alarmed that Jesus and his followers are spending time with these religious crazies, these Samaritans, and he follows his training, he does his job. Yes, he goes about it in a respectful way, calling Jesus teacher, but he still wants to test Jesus to make sure Jesus isn't a fraud who is misguiding people away from God. So he asks Jesus the question, chapter 10, verse 25. What must I do to inherit eternal life? In other words, what must I do to live a full life with God that starts now and lasts forever? Notice that he makes it personal. What must I do? This guy's no amateur. He knows that if he poses his test question as a request for advice, he'll probably put Jesus at ease and get him to talk more. But it doesn't change the fact that he's looking to see if Jesus can provide a well-reasoned answer based on a sound interpretation of Scripture that lays out clear, no-nonsense rules for what to do and where and when if you want to spend eternity with God. That's his training. It's what he believes, that there are specific things you can do to punch your ticket to God in heaven. Jesus knows what's going on, of course. He's not surprised by all this. But as for this poor lawyer, well, he has no idea what's coming next. As Jesus moves the conversation away from a good works, legal contract with God kind of faith, why? To teach this Bible-believing lawyer a lesson. He wants this lawyer, and you and me, by the way, to understand that it's who you are, not so much what you do, that reveals if you are actually walking in step with God or not. It's your right attitude, the posture of your heart, and your right relationships, the quality of your relationships with other people that ultimately count. Because when, with God's help, you've got these right, it'll just naturally show up in godly actions, works, that are truly life-giving and good. It's when our good works flow from a gracious heart towards other people that we can know for certain that we really are experiencing a full life with God right now and forever. You know, it's interesting how Jesus goes about all this. He first meets this Bible-believing lawyer on his own terms. Why? To test the limits of a rules-based do's and don'ts faith. 
He gets the lawyer to answer his own question, which he does, by reciting the two great commands found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, and Leviticus chapter 19, verse 8. Verse 8. Love God with all of your being and love your neighbor as yourself. Then Jesus follows up in verse 28 with a challenge. Do this and you will live. Do this. Those words are stronger in the original Greek. Jesus challenges the Lord to love God and love his neighbor continually, always, without stopping. In other words, Jesus surprises this lawyer who believes in a this-is-what-you-do faith with a task no rules can ever account for. After all, none of us, this lawyer included, flawed and failed and sinful as we are, can love God fully and love our neighbor perfectly and do all this all the time. It's beyond us. We're human and we're also sinful. But this lawyer won't concede. Remember, this is playing out in front of a crowd of Jewish people, and Jesus has turned the tables and is now testing him. And he's off his game. He's looking for a clever way out, where he can, verse 29, justify what he believes. And he thinks his rules-based faith does have an answer. So he asks Jesus, verse 29 again, Ah, but who is my neighbor? Now, this lawyer lives by the holiness code, and in asking this question, he's taking Jesus back to Leviticus chapter 19, a chapter that offers instructions about holy living in the promised land, and which in verse 18, love your neighbor as yourself, appears to use the word neighbor to only refer to fellow Jews. Folks, do you see what's going on here? This lawyer is looking for a way out. What he's really asking is, who is not my neighbor? Where can I draw the line? He's trying to get Jesus to agree that it's only his fellow Jews that he must love continually, always, without stopping, which maybe might be possible. And as for the rest of them, those Samaritans, well, they don't count, so who cares? But again, Jesus knows that this lawyer is trying to limit who my neighbor is. He also notices that this lawyer, rather conveniently, overlooks verses 33 and 34 in Leviticus 19, which actually extends love your neighbor to at least include foreigners living in the promised land. Hmm, kind of like Samaritans among Jews in Palestine. So... Jesus cuts the debate short and tells a story, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, the lawyer must have thought he'd won Jesus over because as the story begins, it talks about an unnamed Jewish man who gets robbed and beaten. So here is the brutally treated fellow Jew that other Jews were obligated under the law to, to help. But the lawyer's hopes are dashed as the story literally passes by this victim. And in case the lawyer doesn't get it, it's a priest and a Levite who had a religious and professional association with the temple in Jerusalem who walk around this fellow Jew, leaving him for the vultures to finish off. You see, the priest and Levite, like our Bible-believing lawyer, are caught in the contradiction of their no-nonsense rules for what to do and where and when kind of faith. In verse 30, it says that this man was half-dead. The priest and Levite could only know for sure if he was alive or dead by touching him. But if he was dead, touching him would break the ceremonial purity laws, the holiness code, that enable them to love God by serving him in the temple. 
But if this fellow Jew was alive and they didn't help, well, then they'd break the command to love your neighbor. They're trapped. This beaten man on the Jericho Road forces them to opt either to love God or to love their neighbor. And in choosing God over their neighbor, they actually fail to live within God's full will, as set out in Deuteronomy and Leviticus. And so we arrive at the parable's surprise, you have no idea what's coming ending. Well, two surprise endings, actually. Ending number one, it's a Samaritan, a half-breed social outcast with a bad religious pedigree who helps the robbed and beaten man. And the second surprise ending, Jesus has changed the question. The lawyer asked, who is my neighbor? But Jesus asks in verse 36, which of these three do you think was neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The lawyer would have preferred the story to focus on the beaten man, but Jesus makes the Samaritan the focus, the person who is a neighbor and who shows it by compassionately responding to this man. Jesus is asking this Bible-believing lawyer, and he's asking you and me, whose neighbor am I? He's calling us to get past lifeless intellectual debates and to actually work this all out instead with God and the Scriptures as our guide, of course, but in flesh and blood relationships with other people. Will we choose to be a neighbor? Not in relationships on paper, but in real life. So how do we actually do this? It isn't easy, is it? Relationships are messy. They're not neat and tidy which suggests that we should go back to Luke, to, to, to Luke 10 to see if there are some, some more helpful surprises there, there that can help us with all this. And let's start with verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. Those words, took pity, which are echoed in had mercy in verse 37, is what this parable is all about. The Aramaic word Jesus actually spoke is a word picture for deep emotion that leads to action. Compassion is how we'd say it, I think. It's that gut reaction we have when we see a person in need and are overwhelmed by their situation and just have to do something about it. Now with that in mind, remember who's telling this story. Jesus, the God who gets up close and personal with us. The God who, out of compassion, the God who, deeply moved by our brokenness, our sin, became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. John chapter 1, verse 14 in the message. Jesus, the one telling this story, is like this good Samaritan neighbor. He shows us not some abstract theological idea of who God is, you know, something like God is love, that we can sort of mull over in our minds. No, Jesus, the good neighbor, shows us who God is by leaving glory behind and moving into the neighborhood to claim it as his own and to meet us there in our troubles and to do something about it, generously, sacrificially, no strings attached, even going to the cross for us. Or to put it into the language of this story, Jesus sees that beaten man and deeply moved. He simply must stop risking everything on that dangerous road to care for him, to carry him to safety, and to sacrificially put everything on his tab at the inn to make this man well again. That's 
who Jesus is. So again, how do we actually do this? How do we learn to show compassion to other people? It doesn't come naturally. Our flaws, our sin can often get in the way. Well, Jesus suggests, and maybe this is a surprise too, that if you want to be a good neighbor, you kind of have to step back and focus on God first. You know, it's easy to skip over verses 25 to 29 in Luke 10, but if we do, we miss that Jesus agrees to a point with this Bible-believing lawyer. Verse 28, after the lawyer recites, love God, love your neighbor, Jesus responds with, you have answered correctly. In fact, at times in his ministry, Jesus himself recited these commands. Check out Matthew chapter 22, verses 35 to 40. Jesus agrees that these two commands are the basis for unpacking the teaching of Scripture and that loving God is where it all begins. It's the first and greatest command, Matthew 22, verse 38. Why? Because our living faith relationship with this God who first loved us, this God who moved by our troubles, crossed the road to help, it's this relationship that will do a transforming work in our hearts which will enable us to be a good neighbor. In Luke 10, Jesus is saying, just as I've come close to you as a good neighbor, you must come close to me as a good friend. Because if you really want to show compassion to the people around you, you must first discover how to show heart for me with all you've got. It's as you are deeply moved to get to know me with your heart, your soul, your mind, that we will get to a deep place together where I can go to work and sort things out and even empower you by my spirit to be moved by compassion for the people around you too. That's what it means to love God. Which raises the question, how are we doing with all this? How, are you in a deep friendship with God these days? Am I? Am I learning to love God with all I've got? Are you? Are we making time to just be with God in the scriptures, in prayer, in life-giving solitude? Are we making time to join with each other for worship, for prayer, for life-giving times together so that God can shape our hearts to be compassionate, good neighbors to those around us, just something for us all to think about today. And while we're thinking about this, let's just pause to enjoy this picture. This is a picture of my mom with her great-grandson, Daniel. It was taken just a week ago, and it has absolutely nothing to do with my sermon, but I just had to share it with you. There's a lot of joy in that picture, isn't there? All right, back to business. Uh, Jesus doesn't only teach us what loving God looks like, he also offers some suggestions about what we must personally work on if we want to get to that compassionate place. And the first suggestion is this, that we really must get past our pride and take an honest look at ourselves. In this parable, four men travel the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, a no-name Jewish man, an ordinary guy who is poor enough not to matter, a priest and Levite, religious big shots with influence, and a wealthy Samaritan who shouldn't be on this road in Jewish territory. These four men give us a pretty good picture of society in the Palestine of Jesus' day. Lower class, higher class, poor, rich, powerless, influential, racial and religious outcast, and those who are pure in body, mind, and spirit. So these four men are traveling the Jericho Road, 
a real road, not a made-up story road, that plunged down through twists and turns past boulders and caves where dangerous gangs hung out waiting to rob and beat people. So the rule of thumb for traveling it safely, and everyone, everyone knew this, was to never travel that road alone, always in a group. Yet in this story, not just one, but four, four men travel the Jericho Road alone, pridefully unaware to the dangers. Oh, I'll be fine. The poor fellow who gets robbed and beaten, he had no business being there. As for the priest and Levite, maybe they believed God or their clerical caller, so to speak, would protect them. And the Samaritan, maybe he thought he could buy his way out of trouble. Who knows? But what we do know is this. They each took a foolish risk. And that's the whole point. In all this foolishness on the Jericho Road, Jesus cuts us all down to size in ways that might make us uncomfortable, maybe even surprise us. It's as if Jesus is saying, be honest. Recognize that you're every bit the reckless fool as the next person. That ordinary or important, poor or rich, part of the in crowd or on the outside, super religious or spiritually suspect, you're as flawed, as failed, as sinful as the next person. Start there with some honesty about yourself if you want to beat with a compassionate heart. Then Jesus makes a more pointed suggestion, namely that we must stop hiding behind our oh-so-religious public persona that actually judges people and shuts them out. Remember, it's not the priest and Levite, the most Jewish of the Jews, who helped this beaten man, and nor would this Bible-believing lawyer. Instead, it's the Samaritan who didn't belong on that road, who took an incredible risk, who stops to help. By now, we should understand just how controversial Jesus is being here. It's the Samaritan, the social outcast whose religious credentials are suspect, who proves to be a good neighbor, living within God's will. This Samaritan, like the priest, the Levite, and the lawyer, was Jewish enough to live by that same holiness code they did, but unlike them, he didn't use that as an excuse when he saw someone in distress. No, he acted with compassion. While they were so determined to protect their purity, their piety, through a stick-to-the-rules kind of faith, that they just plain didn't stop. Jesus is making the point here that we can't set limits on being a good neighbor, which should give all us religious types pause for thought. To flip the script of this story, who do I see? Who do you see as a Samaritan whom we'd rather pass by than help? We need to prayerfully think about that, and we need to change our ways. Repent. Let's not be like this Bible-believing lawyer who still can't bring himself to admit that the Samaritan is the good neighbor in this story and only grudgingly acknowledges that he is, quote, the one, in other words, the one who shall remain nameless, who had mercy on the beaten man. Verse 37, we are called to be a good neighbor, not just to those most like us, not to those who somehow end up in our social circles. No, we are called to be a neighbor to whomever we come across, wherever that might be, without exception. And finally, Jesus suggests in Luke 10 that being a good neighbor doesn't happen by chance. No, it's an intentional act. We are called to go out of our way to make people our neighbor 
the priest and Levite, when they encounter this man, choose to pass by on the other side. Verses 31 and 32. This guy is lying here, and they go over there, away from their Jewish neighbor. Now compare that to the Samaritan when he encounters this man. Verse 34. He went to him and bandaged his wounds. He had a choice too. He could just as easily go around him. But his movement is toward his Jewish enemy on purpose. And in going to this man, he makes him his neighbor. Being a good neighbor means placing yourself in the path of other people, seeking them out, maybe even especially Samaritans, so that you and I can speak God's deeply felt compassion into their lives and welcome them into God's neighborhood. Well, the parable of the Good Samaritan presents all of us with surprising challenges. But honestly, my heart moved towards gratitude as I thought about our church, Rivercross, in light of all this. You know, I think we get it. We hear what Jesus is saying in Luke 10, and with God's help, we are learning to be a good neighbor, not just by chance, but on purpose. This community outreach worship service today, I think, exemplifies that. The fact that we go looking for people, even if it sometimes makes us uncomfortable. And we show compassion and we make them our neighbor. And as the differences fall away, we come together as friends in God's neighborhood. And what I've said about us as a church holds true for each of you. I think I know many of you well enough to say that you really do try your best with God's help to be a good neighbor, even when it's not easy. But for all of us as church and as individuals, there's always room to grow. So here are some questions to think about as we close out our time together. Number one, is your friendship with God shaping your heart to be moved by compassion? Number two, are you honestly aware of what limits your ability to be a good neighbor? Number three, are there Samaritans in your life you'd rather pass by than help? And look, let's be honest, we all have Samaritan blind spots. And number four, will you go looking even for Samaritans and make them your neighbor? Some things to think about. Let's close in prayer. God, we are just so grateful that Deeply moved by compassion, you came to meet us in the neighborhood. You left glory behind, and you took on flesh and blood to spend time with us in our troubles and to do something about it. And at the cross, you made this all real, bringing us into a full life with you that starts now and lasts forever. And we ask that you'll help us to follow your example, that as you shape our hearts into compassion, we will be a good neighbor to everyone who crosses our path on purpose, with no exceptions, so that through our witness, they might be welcomed into your neighborhood too. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.